Before I pray and bring the message, I just want to say a personal word of thanks to Jeffrey Hoare and to all the members of the staff here and the, the vestry. This has been a wonderful week for me. I've thoroughly enjoyed these four opportunities to preach here, and I can assure you that my wife and I will be back to worship often at All Saints. I have loved the fellowship here and the friendship and hospitality you've all extended to me and have loved the music and the liturgy and also the generosity of all of you. Thank you so much for having me. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we didn't come to hear a human voice nor a human opinion, but we did come to hear your word and your voice alone. So to that end, speak a word to each of us that is so clear that none of us could miss it. To that end, pour through me the gift of preaching so that these words might truly become your living word to us and that they might touch and transform our lives and even might transform our behavior this very day. All this we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus, the risen and the reigning Christ. And may all God's people say, Amen. Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciple, if you have love for one another. Now, I absolutely love the story of the first grade boy who had fallen completely in love with his first grade teacher. And it was the day of the first grade graduation, his last day in the first grade. He was so sorry that he had to leave his first grade teacher. So he hugged her and kissed her. And with tears streaming down his face, he said, teacher, I sure wish you knew enough to teach the second grade. <laughs> if you think about it, there's a lot of relationships in our society that are stuck back in the first grade. A lot of relationships that just never grew up. There's a lot of first grade marriages or first grade partnerships where, where one spouse or the other just never forgave the other one or they never were able to just move on beyond that issue. And they kind of remained stuck back in the first grade of their relationship and never went on to maturity. If you think about it, there's a lot of first grade friendships where people are still resentful and bitter and angry about an event that happened 20 or 30 or more years ago. And this friendship is remained stuck in the first grade. They never moved on to junior high school friendship or high school or college or beyond. And if we're honest, there's a lot of us probably who have remained in the first grade in our relationship with Almighty God. We've never deepened our faith. We made an initial faith commitment, but, but it never got deeper or broader or stronger. Now, to be honest, Almighty God is calling us today on this Monday, Thursday to grow up. God wants us to go beyond the first grade in our faith and in our loving human relationships and go on to the second grade and the third grade and the fourth grade and the fifth grade. Actually, God wants us to become Ph.D. Christians, to become the kind of people who God intended us to be from the beginning of time. But part of maturity is not to become childish. It's to become childlike. God wants us to grow up and become mature Christians. And Jesus modeled for us what, what PhD behavior would, would be like. He modeled for us what mature loving would be like on this day we call Mandate Thursday, Monday Thursday. It comes from the Latin word novum mandatum, new mandate. 
a new mandate, not a new suggestion, but a new mandate, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, in order to understand what Jesus modeled for us and the behavior that he modeled for us, I want to pull an experience from someone you know well in the Episcopal Church, Dr. John Claypool, who died in 2005. But he was a professor and a pastor and an author, and you know him well here at All Saints. He he served here for a time. But he had an experience that you may know about. In his junior year of college, Dr. Henry Trentham was teaching classical Greek. And he walked in on the first day of class, and Claypool was a student, and Claypool was shocked, as the other students were, when Dr. Trenum handed them the final exam ahead of time and said, I'm not trying to be cute here. He said, I want you to have the final exam because I have had such a wonderful experience with classical Greek. In reading the classics, in reading the Bible, this has come alive to me. And I want you to know from the first day what I expect of you. I want you to know what I want you to know about the Greek language. It wasn't just teaching for the test. He wanted them to master the Greek language. And Claypool looked at the six-page exam, and he wasn't, I guess, being cute when he said it was all Greek to him. I mean, it was the first day that he'd studied Greek, and it literally was Greek to him. But he learned to master the Greek language because he saw it modeled by Dr. Trenum. Now, like Dr. Trenum, Jesus of Nazareth gave his disciples the final exam ahead of time. He modeled for them and for us the kind of behavior that he wants us to live out in our own lives. He gave them a living example. Picture the scene in your mind's eye of Monday, Thursday. They weren't exactly at tables as we think of being a table. The tables were in a U-shaped. And at the base of the U was where Jesus sat. There was a low, very low table. And it was in a curve, in a U. Jesus is at the base of it. We know from the biblical story that Judas Iscariot was on his left. Because they reclined in that day on their left elbow and they would dip into the dish with their right hand. And the Bible says, the one who dips his hand into the dish with me is the one who will betray me. Judas Iscariot was at his left. John was at his right. You remember John the other day we spoke about it on Tuesday. John wanted to be at the right and left hand of Jesus. John is at the right hand. And also at the table is Peter, the one who in a few hours from this Monday, Thursday, is going to deny him. And Thomas is at the table too. Thomas will become a doubter later when he meets the risen Christ. And all of these earthy, ordinary disciples with their own agenda were at that table, unsure of which one of them was going to be the greatest. And Jesus is reclining and having the meal. And the Bible says he rose from the table, girded himself with a towel, and he washed the disciples' feet. It was the work of a slave. It was the work only the lowest in society would do. You know enough to know about that time in history that the roads, when they were dry, were thick. I mean, inches of dust that would have covered the feet. If it was a time when it was rainy, the dust would have turned to a liquid mess. To wash someone's feet was a loving but a lowly activity. And yet Jesus did it. He did it for them all, for Judas, for Peter. And Peter protested, as you know. But Jesus convinced him he must wash his feet. 
And Jesus did it willingly. Then he resumed his place at the table and he said, do you know what I have done for you? If I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It is so interesting. We have some of these sacraments of the Eucharist and baptism that Jesus participated in, but we haven't mandated washing of feet. It's just interesting in church history. And so Jesus resumes his place at the table and says, do you know what I have done for you? I've set you an example. If I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You always read the Gospel of John at two levels. There's this one level of the washing of the feet and of the servant leadership that he is modeling for them. But at another deeper level, he is really pointing to what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus left his place in heaven girded himself with a towel and served people. He washed their feet and he died on the cross for us. He, he set aside the prerogatives of deity, divinity, and he became a human being and he walked the face of the earth. And then he resumed his place in heaven as if to say, do you know what I have done for you? Now, if you understand what Jesus did on Holy Week and what he accomplished and what was accomplished in his death and resurrection, dying for us, for us, and be raised for us, for us. And then going to reign in power for us, resuming his place at the table for us. Then you know that we are not simply on the face of the earth to make money. We're not simply on the face of the earth to have a job or to drive a car or to raise a family. That's not just why we're on the face of the earth. We are on the face of the earth to be instruments of God's love to others. Do we understand we were created for a bigger purpose? God wants us to model love, not first grade love, but, but PhD, real maturity, not childish behavior, but childlike behavior, loving behavior, joyful behavior. Sometimes, in order to help us grow up, God puts a challenge in our path. Is there anyone here who's got a person in your life who you find difficult to love? Anybody here have somebody who's a neighbor, a family member, a friend who is kind of a nuisance and you have a hard time loving them? Anybody here have a relationally challenged person in your life? Well, you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes I must confess, I think to myself, if the final exam is going to be me loving difficult people, then I'm going to flunk the course. But see, you don't get into heaven by loving somebody. You get into heaven because Jesus Christ died on the cross and God raised Jesus from the dead. And we believe in that. That's the ticket to heaven. That's the that's the pathway to eternal life. But if we understand that, then we respond to that by loving people, even the difficult people of our life. I'll let you in on a secret. The people that I've had the hardest time loving have actually taught me some of the greatest lessons of my life. But it's when I've gone to God and said, I can't love this person. They are too tough for me to love. Would you love them through me? That unlocks love. And suddenly, when God loves them through me, and I open myself to letting God love that person through me, it makes a whole difference. And people I know who have done this have gotten the PhD in loving. They've gone beyond the first grade or the second grade or the third grade to becoming a real mature kind of love. But it's when you allow Jesus to love that person through you that makes all the difference. And when we keep in mind the model of Jesus of Nazareth, who loved by doing a sacrificial servant act. Bill loved Anne with a sacrificial kind of love. 
They'd been married 57 years. Bill and Ann's daughter, Melissa, came and asked me if I would perform her wedding to Andrew, and I was only too happy. I thought certainly it would be in the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church that I served at, where they were involved, but Melissa said, no, we don't want it to be at Fifth Avenue. Would you, could you possibly fly to Ohio and, and do the wedding at my home? And I thought that was a curious, odd request, and I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm busy, and it would be hard for me to take that kind of time, and well, then Melissa explained that she and Andrew fell in love, and I knew them both and loved them both, and they wanted to be married. But Melissa said, what you may not know about me is I'm the fourth of four daughters. My mother had me late in life, and now my mother is close to 80, and, and Melissa was along in her years when they got married. And she said, but my mom has Alzheimer's. My mother's name is Ann. My father's name is Bill. My mother, Tom, is so advanced in Alzheimer's that she can't speak anymore. When you say, I love you, she can't respond. So all she can do is squeeze three times saying, I love you, but, but she's kind of losing it. And the reality is that we couldn't take her into a church and she couldn't come into a church. I mean, she's just groaning all the time. She can't say any words. All she does is groan. And sometimes she drools, oh, Tom, wouldn't you please come to Ohio and do the wedding? I mean, I'm thinking if you do it on the front porch, then maybe my mother could stay in a room and maybe the sounds of the music and maybe the sounds of the vows and your voice would, would kind of waft up into her room and she'd know I was getting married. Please, Tom, wouldn't you come to Ohio? Well, what would you have said? Well, of course... I flew to Ohio, my wife Suzanne and I went, and we met all the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and it was the rehearsal, and I was trying to get everybody organized, and all these groomsmen went to either Harvard, Dartmouth, or Stanford. They were all very tall, they were very intellectual, very bright, very physically fit. It was sickening, really, and what was, what was hardest of all about it was that these guys knew how intellectual they were and how good-looking they were. And so when the, the, the soloist was practicing the solo for the wedding and there was, the soloist was singing, How Great Thou Art, these guys thought it was about them. I mean, this is the kind of people I was dealing with. So, so I was trying to figure out how to just get these guys lined up and how to, how to do something in, with this crowd. And they were very cocky, and they didn't want to listen to me and a, a religious guy. And they, they were too cool for religion, too cool for God, and they didn't want to listen to any of these instructions. And the bridesmaids were no better. They were all Harvard and Stanford and Dartmouth also and with their high-heeled shoes. I mean, they looked like a million bucks, but they knew how beautiful they were. They weren't listening to me either. And we finally got through the wedding rehearsal as best we could. And then at the rehearsal dinner, my wife Suzanne and I were trying to engage some of these cocky groomsmen and cocky bridesmaids in conversation, but they were too cool for words and really didn't have time for us. And we spent most of our time with the, the parents and the bride and the groom and other people. And we had a wonderful time. But the next morning, I wondered how this wedding was going to come off. And so I went up and got my robe and was ready for the wedding. And Melissa said, would you come and pray with my mother and dad before the wedding? And I went into Anne's room and Anne was groaning, this older woman with Alzheimer's, the mother of the bride. Bill, her husband of 57 years, was there and he was trying to rub her back and help her to stop groaning. But she was groaning. I told her that I was going to do her daughter's wedding and told her what was going to happen and said, we're going to have a prayer. And all through it, she groaned. Well, I prayed for Melissa and her sisters, and I prayed for Andrew and for Bill and for her and for their family. And she groaned through the whole prayer. And Melissa walked me out of the room and she hugged me and said, Tom, thank you so much for doing this. 
So I put on my robe and went down and stood on the front of this yellow house. It was beautiful with all the white picket fence around and the white chairs all arranged in rows. And a bagpiper was, was playing Amazing Grace. And it was really a gorgeous scene. And Anne was up in her room and as she was supposed to be. And, and soon the wedding began and the cocky groomsmen came down the aisle. And then the cocky bridesmaids came down the aisle. And then Bill escorted Melissa and he brought her up and handed her over to Andrew. And then he was going to go and sit right there in the first row. But instead of doing that, he walks around the house and the, the, the bagpiper's about to finish. And I'm wondering what's going to happen. How are we going to do this? The father of the bride is gone. And then it happened. Bill comes around the side of the house carrying his 97 pound wife of 57 years, Anne. And he sits her right in the front row. And he sat next to her with his arm around her, and she was groaning. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here in the presence of God and these witnesses to unite Andrew and Melissa in holy matrimony, which is ordained by Almighty God, blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be held in honor and esteem by all people. And as soon as I said that, Anne stopped groaning. I think she knew where she was. And I think the Spirit of God said to her, Anne, listen, your daughter's getting married. And she stopped groaning. We proceeded with the wedding. We had the solo. I did my homily. We had the exchange of vows. And when they exchanged vows, Andrew and Melissa held hands. And the groomsmen were on their side and the bridesmaids were on their side. And, and I saw through Andrew and Melissa to Bill and Anne. We proceeded with the vows. I, Andrew, take you, Melissa, to be my lawfully wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health. And when he said that, every eye turned to look at Bill and Anne. And there he is in the front row with his arm around her and Anne's leaning her head on his, on his shoulder and he's rubbing her cheek, and he's rubbing her hair, and he's whispering the vows in her ear. And suddenly, I look over at all these cocky bridesmaids and groomsmen. They've all got tears streaming down their face, because for the first time in their life, I think, they saw not a first-grade love, but they saw a Ph.D. kind of love. And they realized they may not always look like this. Bill and Ann went to great schools, and they were once very good-looking, but now they're almost 80 years old, and they don't look the same. And Ann doesn't have the same mind she used to have, but she's a brilliant woman nevertheless. And suddenly it hit them that they may not always be in charge of the universe like they think they are, and sometimes they may have a need, and they will need somebody to love them like Bill is loving Ann. And so at the wedding reception, after the wedding, all these groomsmen and bridesmaids were coming up to me while I was going over over to the bar and trying to get something to drink and going over to try to get something to eat. They're all coming up to me and they're saying, where do you get a love like that? I'm just trying to get my dinner and trying to get something to drink. And they're saying, where do you get a love like this? And I said, well, this kind of love isn't humanly manufactured. They said, yeah, well, where do you get it? I said, well, frankly, you get this kind of love from God. I mean, this isn't a love. This isn't love of this isn't natural. This is supernatural. Bill and Ann have that love for each other after 57 years because God's in their marriage. God's in their life. And if you have God in your life, you get the power from God to love that way. And, 
And all these groomsmen and bridesmaids are suddenly talking to me about how you get this kind of love. And one of the greatest moments of my whole life was at Fifth Avenue Church. About six months later, I baptized one of those cocky groomsmen in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As he came to the realization he couldn't get beyond the first grade in loving without the help of God. And so on this mandate Thursday, Monday Thursday, when Jesus issued this new commandment that I, that I give unto you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, I asked you, are you trying to love with first grade love or fifth grade love or junior high love? The only way you can love with a PhD is to let Jesus love people through you. A new mandate, not a new suggestion, a new mandate I give unto you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. That's what the gospel and what Maundy Thursday is all about. Amen.